I'm a little bit of a, a crazy uncle in the in the fire community, right? Because everybody else is doing this totally passive investing, right? Everything is Vanguard in it. If I'm doing my option trading, I'm I'm extremely exotic. I mean, three strikes, you're <laughs> you're out. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Karsten Yeska. Today, we're talking about real estate private equity investing, investing in private equity funds that take large investments and buy multiple large commercial properties. Karsten has a background of economics. He worked on Wall Street and high finance. He worked for the Federal Reserve, and now he is early retired. And he's telling us about his personal asset allocation strategy from how he allocated his funds. And then we dig deeper into the real estate investment aspect of his asset allocation strategy. This is getting to a very important issue for a lot of busy professionals who are working on getting ready for their early retirement or getting ready for retirement in general. And they want to get into real estate, but they don't know a way to do it where they're not going to have to manage a tenant or manage a property manager or go find the properties themselves. Well, this is an option. It's not a great option for everybody, but it's an option and it's working out for Karsten. So today, once again, we're talking about real estate, private equity investing, investing in funds, pretty big chunks of money in funds with experts who invest in real estate by multiple properties and manage the whole process for you. Could be good for you. I don't know. Check out this interview and you'll learn more about how it's worked for Karsten and what he does. For those of you who are new to the show and don't know yet, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate, individual properties, but real estate with passive investors and split the returns, specifically apartment buildings. Thank you for tuning in. Glad to have you with us today. Once again, our guest is Karsten Yeska. And here we go with the interview. Karsten, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to talk with you. We're going to talk, cover a few interesting topics today. But before we get into that, can you tell our listeners about what you do and some of your history in the corporate world? So I'm from Germany originally. I came to the US as an exchange student and then I stayed here full time. came here for my grad studies, finished my master's and PhD. And after leaving school in 2000, I first worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta for eight years. And then 2008 till 18, I worked for a large asset manager, Bank of New York Mellon. And I was at their San Francisco office. And after doing that for 10 years, I've, I had enough in, in multiple ways. So I, I had saved enough money and I did the exact calculation that a lot of other people do, right? They look at what is my passive income and is my passive income enough to pay my bills. And I think we, we could have already retired probably in 2016, would have been a little bit tight. But then in 2018, I came to the realization, if I keep working, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just not worth it anymore. Unless I want to so vastly expand our living expenses, it would have been crazy to keep working. So, so two years ago, was almost to the day, almost to the month, I retired. Nice. And then ever since I've been living early retirement life. Also, my, my wife is also retired. So so we we went this really full 
the 100%, right? It's not like one spouse is still working and the other spouse, well, they call themselves retired, but they're really only a stay-at-home spouse. So we really have enough passive income to never have to work again. And so I do a little bit of blogging on the side. It's, it's not really, it makes a bit of income, but it's not that we need that income to, to live in retirement. Cool. Well, congratulations on achieving that milestone. It's a great achievement. I want to talk a little bit before we dive a little deeper about your asset allocation that allowed you to get to that point. So what were you investing in that was kind of spitting off the, the income to pay for your expenses? Right. So I did that in phases. So in the accumulation phase, for the most part, I just invested in passive index funds. So US large cap index fund, S&P 500 index funds, US total stock market funds. Then later in the accumulation phase, say somewhere around 2014 or so, then I branched into some other, other asset classes, which meant that I left the equity index funds untouched. It's not like I withdrew money from there and allocated it somewhere else. So it basically meant that starting in 2014, I uh, contributed less to the index fund investing. And then I started branching into some other asset classes. So I, I invested a little bit in real estate. So that's through private equity funds. So that's all hands off to me. That's, that's truly passive for me. That's maybe about 11%, 11, 12% of our total net worth. And about 35% or so of our net worth, I do some option trading. It sounds very active, but it's, it's actually really easy. So it's, uh, I spend three times a week. I probably have to spend minimum five minutes on this. If I want to drag it out a little bit more, I can spend more. So it's not like I'm day trading options. Right? So it's not like I have to do any kind of deep analysis. It's, it's very rules-based. It's, it's rules-based enough that it's easy, but it's not so easy that I can completely automate and let, let, just let the computer run it. So there's a little bit of, of uh, discretion and handiwork involved, but for the most part, it's, it's passive. So I'm, I'm doing, some, doing a trading strategy on put options on S&P 500, on the S&P 500 index. I've, I've written about that on my, on my blog, what's the, what's the philosophy there. The philosophy is that you're selling downside insurance. People demand insurance and people are willing to pay an insurance premium and it's a little bit more of a premium, more than the true expected value of it. And uh, so that, that's, how I, that's how I justify that strategy. And this is why it has been working for so almost 10 years now. I've been doing that a little bit on the side. And, and now I'm doing it a little bit more intensely. I used to start really small and, and now I'm uh, doing it on a bigger scale. Yeah, and then the rest of the portfolio, so this is probably about half of the portfolio that is just index funds, US, mostly US, a little bit of international index funds. And that's all totally passive. That's with Fidelity. It's with my former employer that we, I still have that money in the 401k plan there. And that's also all just index funds just totally hands off, just live off of the dividends. So there's very little, very little work involved for me. Nice, nice. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the real estate aspect of your investments and your asset allocation, like the things that you've invested in, what type of private equity, why you decided to start adding that to your portfolio. I think you said in 2014. So first, let's talk about the whys, like really... What did it, was that a plan or did you just kind of come upon that, that in 2014, I think I need to add right. real estate to my portfolio? Right. Yeah. So 
Back in 2014, I mean, we pretty much had a 100% equity portfolio. And I, I, I already had that option trading thing on the side, but that's, again, equity-based. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm running 100% equities, and I'm thinking about retiring, and I probably want to diversify a little bit. A lot of people diversify with the bond portfolio, and I, I was never a big fan of bonds. It's, it's just pretty measly returns, especially right now. And I thought, okay, well, let's look at a different asset class. It's not perfectly correlated. And real estate sounded like a good idea. And of course, I've always been scared of investing in real estate because it's very lumpy investment, very illiquid. It might take a lot of big, lumpy initial investment, even though, I mean, I've, I've obviously, I've listened through some of your podcasts and this, it's probably not quite as intimidating as, as I thought it would be. But again, and yeah, on top of that, I, I was a busy professional, right? I was working full time. It's not like I'm going to start managing my own real estate portfolio on the side. So I thought that I would go the route of the, the private equity fund where, which is, Essentially, I mean, these people, they, some of these people have been doing this for many decades, right? I mean, they're the original crowdfunders, right? They, they did crowdfunding before even the internet existed. <laughs> so they, they have a platform where they pool people's money. They form an LLC. They find the opportunities. They get a cut of the upside and they get a management fee for that. And what I liked about it is it's a different asset class. It will, it will eventually be something that will throw off a, a steady dividend stream. There's some tax advantages to that. So, I mean, first of all, the, the asset class in general, right? Real estate, there's some tax advantages. I mean, some of these managers, they even find some additional tax advantages, like they would go into low-income family housing. Then you can structure some of that income. I, and again, to this day, I don't totally understand what the hell, what laws they are using in this. But they can structure some of this into tax-free income. So they, 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 they split off a, apparently a bond off of this property, and uh, then that bond can pay a tax-free dividend. And if you follow certain rules in this, this whole Section 8 jungle of laws, again, this, obviously this is not something that I could ever do. First of all, I don't, I don't have the, the legal expertise for that. And then, of course, I mean, these are also some slightly larger multifamily developments, right? So these, are, these could be anywhere between 50 to 80 or maybe 200 units. And this is something that I couldn't touch as a single mom and pop investor. In fact, one of the reasons why they are able to pick up sometimes properties for, say, 70 cents on the dollar is that there are some smaller investors that have gotten in a little bit over their head and they've fallen out of compliance with all of this legal mumbo jumbo. And so then they have to liquidate the property and so they can get it at a lower price and then bring the properties back to, back to compliance again. That's how they are able to find some, some event-driven sales. So apparently, the properties that they buy, they are not looking through the MLS listings or anything like that, right? If, if there even is a, a, an MLS listing for a, for a 200 or property. So they find some good opportunities and they have the financial power to do that. And then, what I also liked about this is that Usually the minimum investment is somewhere around $250,000 per fund. You can haggle them down to maybe 100000 But that $100,000 investment, that is going to go into, say, a maybe seventy dollars to $100 million, sometimes even $200 million pool of money. Wow. 
that's the that's up to two hundred million dollars in equity, right? You you lever that up, so that means my hundred thousand dollar investment buys me access to a large pool of not just one but multiple multifamily developments. So somewhere between eight, ten to twelve different properties that are usually in in these LLCs. So it's one master LLC and then each property is its own LLC. So, and I thought, okay, I mean, that sounds like a really good access point for somebody like me who is lazy, who doesn't have time to, to do that whole real estate investing myself. And you know what, I'm willing to pay you a percent per, per year of the management fee. You, you, you definitely deserve that. And then, and then there's a certain, uh, there are certain rules, right? I mean, you, so the, the investors get paid back first, and then there's a there's some rules as to the first such and such percent of the profits go to the investor, and then after that it's split eighty twenty, and then after that it's it's split fifty fifty. So I mean, I I like the idea that everybody has their their incentives defined really well. So the the manager definitely has a huge incentive because if they didn't make a capital gain at the end. Uh, on top of the the earnings and everything, the, the the regular dividends and the rental income, if they didn't make a, a nice equity profit at the end, they they wouldn't make all really all that much money. So they 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 have a huge incentive to look for good deals, buy something on the cheap, fix it up, and then sell it maybe after seven to ten years. So the the advantage is that I mean is all passive for me. Of course, the disadvantage is that. If I had my own properties, right, I could do this whole deal where I keep them forever and then I, I, I leave them to our daughter and she gets the step-up basis. So, I mean, eventually I will have the, the tax bill for the capital gains. That, that's the one drawback. My, my wife and I, we talked about should we, should we jump in and buy our own property and have have our own thing where we can decide the buy and the and the liquidation point or, or maybe never liquidate it at all keep it forever for income and then give it as a bequest to our daughter and she gets the step up basis i mean i i like the i like the idea of all of these other tax incentives that these guys have identified there so it's a uh, it's, a, it's an attractive asset class. And, and again, I would like to put more money into this asset class, but it's, it's a bit of a slow process, right? Because the, the way these private equity funds sometimes work, right? You put in a commitment, right? The most recent commitment, we did $250,000. And I mean, so far they've called only 120000 hmm. I guess over the next year, and I don't know how much this whole Corona business is going to delay any of this, it could even accelerate it, right? Because they could say, now we find good deals, properties where tenants are delinquent and it, it sank the finances of some of the mom and pop investors. But anyway, so it, it could be that, that they have more opportunities or fewer opportunities going forward. I mean, it's, it's not like I can just shift over a million dollars into this today. It's going to be a slow process. And I actually like that idea too, because then you, you have almost this staggering of, of different properties, of different private equity funds. Some of them are just fresh. The other ones are already mature. They just pay, they just pay you the rental income. I think this is, this is the right way to go where I stagger this a little bit and do this over time and don't do it all at once. Interesting. So I'd like to dig into finding and evaluating the, these private equity funds. And you have a, you have a background in finance, so you're pretty savvy and I'm, I'm, 
an expert in evaluating these types of funds. So what did you look for, when, particularly when you got started? I mean, I don't know whether you knew these folks from your career or how you hunted them down, but what did you do? Right. In fact, I'm not an expert at all, right? So I'm, I'm in finance, but I'm, I'm a macroeconomist by training. And I worked in global macro asset allocations or a large fund that caters to institutional investors. And our investment universe where I worked, there was all just liquid instruments, right? Futures, options, individual stocks, not so much. It's mostly just derivatives based. It's very liquid, very liquid instruments. And now you have to evaluate a private equity fund, uh, that's something completely different, completely outside of my expertise. So yeah, as, as you said, it's, I actually knew people who moved from, I knew one person who moved from my company uh, and then started working for the investor relations of one of these funds. And uh, so I, I think I, I met her at the, at the bus stop one day and, and then we started talking about that. I mean, this is, this is how crazy, uh, the life works sometimes, right? And I said, yeah, you know what? I mean, I'm interested in hearing more about that. So I, I yeah, quote unquote, interviewed them, right? I mean, you went to the office and well, okay, well, good, it's good. They have an office. Uh, they have people working there. Yeah, and then did some background checks. I mean, the nice thing about doing your background check on some of these uh, funds is, is it, yeah, I mean, you can check the property tax records, and then if they claim they own this place, uh, you can you can check the property tax records. So it's not like Bernie Madoff, right? Bernie Madoff told people he has twelve billion dollars worth of stocks, and then he showed them some statements, but they could have come from anywhere. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, nice thing about these uh, private equity funds is that I mean, there are even some public records that uh, that you can check so and uh, yeah i mean apart from that you have to rely on what they tell you right i mean you, you, they give you the performance of uh, funds that they have run in the past and you have to cross your fingers and hope that that they uh, keep doing as well as they did and i mean there's i mean there's obviously some some signs that that looked like yeah, I mean they invest their own money in this too, right? They have the incentives uh, aligned in the in in the way the the formula is calculated on who gets paid what um, at the end. Apart from that, you just you have to you have to rely on uh, on what they tell you. So that I mean, that's by the way another reason why I didn't want to jump in with both feet and put just some some big percentage of our uh, of our net worth into this i mean this is uh, you, you want to go slowly and see uh, and see how they do even that is not uh, is not totally foolproof obviously yeah yeah absolutely i mean you're getting into a different world when you're buying an index fund i mean it, the odds that it's fraudulent are extremely exceedingly low but you, when you're getting into private equity, your exposure to that risk goes up a bit. Now, why did you, I mean, whether you did or not, I mean, you were looking at getting some real estate exposure and coming from an index fund investing background. Why did you dis- decide to go private equity rather than REITs? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously REITs, that's very liquid. It's very transparent. And um, I've... Uh, yeah, maybe 20 years ago, I would have done more of that. But I looked at the REITs landscapes, especially coming out of the global financial crisis with interest rates really low. You had this yield chasing behavior where 
the prices for for REITs and and the yields inside of yields seemed a little bit unattractive to me, and and I thought that the the, the private route is probably much more attractive. In fact, I asked some of the people that do the the, the private equity. Well, who do you sell your properties to when you're done, right? When you so you buy something on the cheap, you fix it up, you run it for seven years. Who buys this? And they say, yeah, REITs buy this, right? I mean, they they are too big and bulky, so they don't have this uh, this expertise. I mean, think of REITs almost as the as the indexing people in the in the real estate world. So they just buy up everything. So I mean, REITs would be one. Pension funds would be would be another a target customer where that that they would sell to after after they have done and they have milked for long enough. My suspicion is that yeah, you know, REITs. I mean, first of all, you have some REITs if you invest in your S and P five hundred index fund or your uh, your U.S. total stock market fund. You have REITs, right? The real estate is one of the is one of the subsectors. Of course, the the tax treatment of REITs is is unattractive. You have to put it into a retirement account, and uh, so I, I like the idea that we can keep this inside of our taxable accounts. And so yeah, the, the, you you can pick up a lot of uh, tax advantages through uh, through going the the private equity route rather than the REIT. And again, I mean, uh, you, you look at a REIT, and again, I'm not a super big. Uh, expert on accounting, but uh, yeah, I mean, you look at some of the REITs, you look at the price to book value, right? I mean, the price to book value is more than one, right? So in order to get $100,000 worth of real estate equity in a REIT, you have to pay more than $100,000. Whereas from some of these private equity funds, you pay you pay a hundred thousand dollars in equity, and they give you a hundred thousand dollars in equity. Sometimes even a little bit less, right? They, because they buy stuff in event-driven sales. And they pick. They don't pick it up for pennies on the dollar, but they pick it up for say seventy or eighty cents on the dollar. And uh, so I, I like that. So there's definitely one of the few places in finance where this this whole active um, asset picking there's still a huge dividend to that. Whereas say in the in the stock picking world, it's become really hard to to beat the market, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. There are more inefficiencies in the real estate market. Now, regarding if you wanted to diversify or if somebody wanted to get into this more, I guess, maybe institutional, would you call it, or larger private equity real estate fund. I mean, if they didn't have a background where they might already have kind of a network of folks that have gotten into that, I mean, where would you be able to find somebody like this to really get started? You know, the problem is that these funds, they are not really able to advertise, right? Because the, you have to be an accredited investor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think it's it's uh, word of mouth. The, the, the problem with the word of mouth is that, well, can you really trust people that, that tell you, yeah, I worked with these guys and you should work with them too? Uh, are, are there any other motives involved? I think it's hard. I mean, unless you know somebody who works there and you trust them, how do you do that and not risk losing a, a big chunk of your of your net worth? I mean, obviously, right now we have these crowdfunding platforms, right? So, this, I mean, that would be that would be one route. So, there's some screening process beforehand. Uh, I mean, that's that's something I've entertained that idea. Problem with that is I. I can invest a hundred thousand dollars in one of these funds, and then that's spread over ten different funds over 10 different properties. So yeah, I mean, I could also probably invest the, the minimum investment is probably about $10,000 or so for a, 
for one of these crowdfunding platforms. So it's not like the the uh, the entrance, the the minimum investment is really that much lower in the crowdfunding platforms for me personally. Yeah, I mean the the nominal amount, the the the, the headline amount is yeah, it's ten thousand dollars versus hundred thousand dollars. But the ten thousand dollars is for one single properties, and over there I can do a hundred thousand uh, dollars, but then it's spread over multiple properties. So it's it's not that that big of a difference. Obviously, if you've never heard, if you don't know anybody in the industry and you want to dip your toes into real estate, as probably one of these crowdfunding platforms might be, might be a good start. Hmm, okay, okay. But it sounds like the market in itself, at least the, the part that you're in of this private equity is even more opaque than the crowdfunding space, which is fairly broadly marketed. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you, I mean, you have to look at this private placement memorandum and you read through some of the paragraphs. Oh my God! I mean, it's like you're signing away your life there, right? I mean, they tell you everything that can go wrong. They tell you all of the money you give them. It's totally out of your control. Yeah, I mean, it's this is opaque. That's that's it's about as opaque as it gets in the investing world <laughs> so but then again i mean you uh, again I, I as i told you where i worked in finance we were on the most liquid side right but i mean we were obviously talked to pension funds and big endowments and, and places like that and uh, uh i mean we also know that they were also very interested in in these illiquid investments right so there is an illiquidity premium and that opaque premium. Yeah, it is It is very illiquid and opaque and, and uncertain, but uh, there's also a risk premium and a, and a higher expected return because of that. Hmm. So um, if you can, I mean, if you don't put your entire net worth into this and you put a small enough portion and you stagger it such that it's not all tied up for the next seven years, it's uh, there's always one tranche that that pays off in the next one to two years. And there's always one tranche that is just very young and uh, that will not pay any dividends for a while because they're still looking for opportunities. So if you, if you spread this into enough smaller chunks, say the, the way a pension fund would do that or an endowment, I mean, there's, I, that's, that, that was one of the reasons why, why I became very intrigued with this asset class, right? because a lot of very smart, very savvy investors uh, are going that same route. So it's, uh, uh, it's definitely something, something that you want to look at uh, as, as an alternative. I mean, of course, they, in, in the fire community, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, uh, the crazy uncle in the, in the fire community, right? Because everybody else is doing this <laughs> totally passive investing, right? So everything is index fund and, and, and they, Everything is Vanguard index, not just index fund. It has to be Vanguard, right? If, if you have fidelity, you're already yeah. a little bit exotic. Then if I'm doing my option trading, I'm, I'm extremely exotic. And then that private equity real estate, that's, uh, that's probably, I mean, three strikes, you're, <laughs> you're out almost, right? So again, I mean, it's, I think it pays to be different. And there's, a, there's uh, especially now, you know, equity valuations seem really expensive again. So I think uh, real estate is a is a good alternative nice i like that right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor all right karsten i've got three questions i ask every guest on the show are you ready sure all right great first one what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education 
Right. So I think it's a, it's a horse race between two uh, different things. I wrote a blog post about this. My best investment ever might have been that I bought a condo in San Francisco in 2008. It's actually 2008 was not the best time to buy it because there was still before the big drop. Mm. Uh, but even from 2008 until 2018, when I factor in all of the benefits of having my own condo, right? I don't have to pay rent in one of the be- most expensive cities in the world. Uh, I got a. I didn't even get that much capital appreciation. I, I think it was it was a little bit over fifty percent in ten years. It's not huge, um, and uh, but all of the tax benefits, everything. I think I came out as something like sixteen or seventeen percent, which is per, per year. Uh, and uh, so again, factoring in everything: the the rent that I saved, uh, the capital gains, the tax incentives. Uh, so I thought I thought that was a pretty good uh, investment. And then I. Uh, I also, uh, I worked in finance. I got a, I got a bonus every year and I got the 2008 bonus, which was actually still really good. I got, that got paid out in, on February 28th, 2009. And I invested that in an S&P 500 index fund right around the, the absolute bottom. <laughs> I think the S&P was at about 700 points at that time. And now oh. it's at, now it's at 3,200 plus the dividend income over time. So that that's a pretty decent uh, return. It's you can you can probably get much better returns if you had invested, say, in Amazon or Google. Because I, I've never been a stock picker, so the only impressive returns I can show you is where I took the index and I invested it. Uh, but I, I did invest a pretty large chunk of money uh, right at the bottom, and I still have those tax lots. And uh, so, so that was a that was a good investment. It was very gutsy, but uh, it paid off. <laughs> hey, if it pays off, that's what matters. Now. <laughs> Yeah. We had the one that paid off, the couple that paid off. Now we're going to the other side of that coin. What is the worst investment you ever made? I th- yeah, I think the worst is probably a close to a total loss. And I invested the way, way early. So when I was in grad school in the in the late 90s, I had invested. I, I dabbled a little bit in um individual stocks and the, but the worst investment was actually a bond it was a corporate bond from south korea and uh, it had a really attractive yield and everything but well guess what asian crisis hit uh, company went into restructuring i guess the, the company is still around because the the, the name still exists uh, but of course, they declared bankruptcy and they they shoved it to the investors. And I I think I lost probably ninety eight percent of mine. It was a small investment, but you you learn your lesson. You know, there's a, there's a risk premium. If the yield is high, it's because there's some risk involved. And mm-hmm. I I paid the price there. Small small price, but it, w- it was a good lesson. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> well, speaking of lessons, third question, my favorite one. What is the most important lesson? that you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, so in investing, I mean, I like the idea of investing regularly and no matter what the market is doing, right? If the market is up, if the market is down, a lot of people get cold feet and they stop investing if you have a recession or a bear market. Or even worse, they they not only stop investing, but they pull the money out because they say, oh, this is mm-hmm. too scary, uh, can't take it anymore. And I mean, we're talking about people at age 25 or 28. And then they say, well, I have to, I took my money out of my 401k. It just wasn't worth it anymore. How long do you have until retirement? Why do you take your money out? So my best advice was, you know, if the market is down, just keep investing, right? Think of this as stocks are on sale. 
and keep doing the dollar cost averaging and you can do it with small amounts. And uh, so, I mean, even if you're otherwise, say, a real estate investor, right? but I mean, use the opportunities that you get at your job, your 401k contributions, just make sure you get the match from your employer if that applies to you and put that in the stock market. I mean, forget about asset allocation. Just if you're young, 100% equities, forget about sweating the allocation, forget about stock picking. Do regular small amounts uh, and you do that for a long time. And, and I lived through this twice, by the way, right? My first job was in 2000 and uh, I lived through that bear market in the early 2000s. Then I moved from the Fed job uh, into uh, into asset allocation in 2008. So again, right around the peak of the of the bull market, and then you go through that valley again and again. So you just you supersize your contributions when the market is down. You do the dollar cost average. Basically, throughout my work life, I worked for 18 years full time. The first eight years at the Fed, I did okay with my savings. The the last 10 years. I did a lot of contributions. So it's really, most of, most of it is, is over 10 years. The point-to-point -point return in equities over those 10 years wasn't that impressive, right? Because the S&P was at 1,500 uh, in, in 2007. And then in 2018, it was at maybe 3,000. So yeah, it doubled. But it doesn't sound like you can retire off of that. But what you can retire off of is that you did the dollar cost averaging through the bear market and through the recession and that helped me so my internal rate of return on my investment was much higher than what the what the S&P 500 returned over over that time point to point and it's it's again you you use the dollar cost averaging and that uh, that that gave me a lot of mileage in my my path to to early retirement nice nice well Great lessons. I really appreciate you bringing us this topic of real estate, private equity investing. We talk a lot about real estate syndication on the show, but it's, we're not generally talking funds. We're talking much smaller investment amounts and usually right. individual properties. So thank you for bringing that topic to us today. If folks want to learn more about you, if they want to get in touch, if they want to talk more about any of these topics we've discussed today, where can they find you? Yeah, I have a blog. It's called earlyretirementnow.com. Just one long word, earlyretirementnow.com. And you can, um, you can, there's a contact field. You can write me there. You can leave a comment. I usually try to respond to all comments after my blog posts. There's also a link to my to my Twitter. Twitter, I don't. Uh, Twitter and Facebook, I'm not that careful in uh, in responding. Uh, but uh, I mean, you can you can find my email uh, on my blog and contact me through that if you if you want to contact me one on one. All right, fantastic. Thanks once again for joining us today, bringing all these lessons to us. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. We'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.